The world is changed. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. I smell it in the air. Greetings, dear listeners. This is uh, Jonah Goldberg with the Remnant Podcast. Uh, we have a um, scintillating episode uh, this week. Um, this week's uh, episode of uh, The Remnant is brought to you by, oh, let's just say it, Suicide of the West, this book I came out with. But beyond that, uh, here's the plan. I leave, I leave from this studio today to go pick up my RV for my cross-country adventure. Very excited about this. And we are looking on the map for, for Walmarts past the Mississippi River for where we will camp for the first night um, in some Walmart or other parking lot. And I wanted to get one more sort of politics, punditry, uh, eh, conservatism um, podcast in before I hit the road. And I happened to bump into one Matt Continetti. At the Fox News Green Room last night, we were both going on special report, and on a lark, I asked him if he could make it here, and he said he could. So welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me, Jonah. I have I had nothing else to do, so <laughs> thanks for you rescuing me from my um. Well, these are the dog days of summer, right? Yeah, and um, basically any excuse to use air conditioning is is, <laughs> is nice reward enough down here. So where to begin? Uh, we're recording this on Thursday morning. Last night, the president rescinded uh, John Brennan's security clearance. John Brennan is claiming and his defenders are claiming that this is a wild assault on free speech, which I cannot connect those dots. But but maybe you can. What do you make of the whole thing? Well, Brennan's claiming that he's been silenced from the op-ed page of The New York Times, which is an odd platform to say that it you've is. been put on mute. And of course, every time Trump does one of these retaliation uh, actions, uh, critics say, oh, he's attempting to silence debate, but it has the effect of elevating whoever he's going after. Right. So uh, my first reaction when I heard this news was, well, it's classic Trump. You know, you, you pivot from one controversy by creating another one. And so up to this moment, he had been actually on the defensive uh, because of Omarosa. Right. And so now he goes on offense, as he likes to be, by um, revoking Brennan's security clearance. Uh, which he had kind of – we went through a period in the end of July where this right. was being discussed. And and when Paul Ryan was asked about it, he says, oh, he's just trolling. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, was that you asking him in in your conversation? No, or, but it was okay. like that week. It was around the same yeah, time, yeah, right. Yeah. And um, so I guess this was the time to do it. And of course, it's, a, it, it's, it's cynical, but it's also pretty effective because right. now everyone's debating Brennan. I have a lot of – and I know you do too – I have various reactions to this. Obviously, it's violating a norm. There's no example of this being done before. Uh, the revocation of this um, security clearance by a, you know, of a former CIA director. On the other hand, Brennan has also violated several norms right. since he left office, including uh, just amping up the rhetoric about Trump, not only insinuating that Trump is more or less a Russian, uh, Russian tool um, without providing any evidence, but accusing him of treason, um, talking about how Trump is leading a cacistocracy which, uh, you know, I, I never knew what that word meant. I know you you did already. But, of course, of course. Uh, it was uh, kind of pedagogic for Brennan to introduce cacistocracy. So what is this really? Does it harm Brennan? No. Does it set a kind of uh, um, worrisome precedent? Yes. 
Yeah, so uh, I, I agree with all that. Um, I think one of the things that people – I think a lot of people on the left don't understand is that when Trump violates norms, they violate them too, right? And this is this is one of the things that as a conservative we're supposed to understand is that norms are like – I don't know. They're like guardrails or railings on a stairwell um, if – you rip out the railing on a stairwell, that means your enemies don't have it either and aren't going to rely on it either, right? And the response to Trump all over the place has been a sort of bonfire of norms where, like, I mean, I remember, what was it? Um, Remember when Trump invited the Russians to the Oval Office and blurted out that it was, he, got, he, he took a lot of pressure off himself <laughs> by firing like, I mean, Comey, right? Yeah. Pressure's off. There were an enormous number of norm violations there by the president. There were also an enormous number of norm violations by the people who leaked all of that, right? And that's what happens is that when you get rid of norms, it's not like everybody else. And this is something that conservatives don't understand either these days, or I should say Trump supporters don't understand, is that they get really mad at the hypocrisy of people who say Trump's violating norms who are themselves violating norms. Well, you can't have it both ways. Once the norms are gone, everybody starts violating norms. And Trump has unleashed that. And the response to it is is bad, too. Um, and I don't I don't know how you fix this. Right. I don't know how you tell liberals with a deep state or whoever he can violate all the norms he wants. But you guys have to keep pretending like he's a normal president. I just don't think it works that way. And it's causing that's why I think the the half-life of all of this is going to be so much longer than people right. realize. Well, to put my uh, MAGA cap on, for, uh, my imaginary MAGA cap for a second, you, you know, the perspective of the Trump voter is the left has been violating norms for decades, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. certainly certainly in during the second term of President Obama. And so they actually like it when Trump does right. things like this, right? They, they, they say, finally, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Um, and so one has to ask, does that just... Does that carry on to whoever follows Trump? Um, right. Is there a possibility that whoever does come after Trump will be someone who actually runs and says, well, we want to kind of restore the guardrail. So I want to be the candidate to kind of put the put the norms back in place. Uh, it certainly doesn't look like that now when you look at the political scene. But I, think but I don't think I don't think President Avenatti is going to restore a lot of norms. No. And in fact, well, that's the funniest thing, right? I mean, he's already coming. He's he's going to Iowa. He's going to New Hampshire. I think it was CNN had a article about Michael Avenatti saying about how he rescued a Guatemalan boy. Um, and he he already has his bumper sticker ready, which is the Basta. Right. You know, his hashtag Basta, which he puts on all his Twitter feeds. So if that's what it, the media certainly likes and the Democrats certainly like, then, right, we're, we're in for another, for another cycle of this, at least. I, was, I cannot stand Avenatti. I mean, let me be clear about this. But I kind of like, and I think the Basta thing is, is too precious by half and all that kind of stuff. But there is an implicit sort of return to normalcy involved in the hashtag that I kind of like. Um, but uh, as someone who's a big fan of returning to normalcy after World War One, because Woodrow Wilson sucked. But again, to me, it's like, oh, you're in a swamp. Not the Washington swamp, but like literally or figuratively a real swamp with alligators and piranha and stuff in it. And one guy keeps shaking the, the canoe, right? And like leaning from one side to another. And you're like... That's outrageous. You're going to swamp us. We're going to attack, capsize, and these things are going to eat us. And their response is to rock the canoe, too. <laughs> and right. I understand it's a human response, but it's going to 
cap- capsize the canoe. <laughs> it's still going to capsize the canoe, right? And um, and may, look, maybe this is all overdue. Maybe all these norms have to be revisited, and maybe that's what what's going to happen, regardless. But on this note, today in Politico, they had a piece saying that there are more and more people surrounding Trump who think it would be good for him to if if the Republicans lost the House. Where do you come down on this pressing issue? Well, I call we me- both stipulate that we think if you had to if you had to bet Republicans will lose the House. Doesn't look good right now. Yeah. Okay. Um, fifty fifty. I'm an old-fashioned guy. I think it's bad to lose in politics. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, that's just kind of the old fogey conservative. Vibe. That was always Ed Koch's line. He says, yeah. my mother taught me it was always better to win. It's always better to win in <laughs> yeah. politics. That's, uh, silver linings never really work out the way you think they they will. On the other hand, I can kind of see where these Trump uh, supporters are coming from. You have to look at it from their perspective. One, there's no Republican agenda. Yeah, yeah, sure. Right? So what is – basically everything that the Republicans had been working uh, toward for decades was kind of, um, you know, uh, put into that tax bill at the end of 2017. And we're talking ANWR. We're talking – we're talking repeal the mandate. We're talking, um, you know, let's punish the university endowments by taxing them. It was kind of like a big Santa Claus wish list. Once that was passed – and we don't really look like we're going to be repealing Obamacare legislative, legislatively anytime soon. You have to ask, well, what, what, is, what is the House doing? Right. And this is just a total exhaustion on the part of Republicans. Well, the House is really there to be a bulwark against investigations of Trump. Right. Now, the cynical Trump people might say, well, maybe those investigations will actually help us because it will allow – uh, Trump to play a sympathy card with his base heading into 2020. And as long as we keep the Senate, where the main function of the Senate, again, not to pass legislation because there's no legislation forthcoming, the main sec- uh, function of the Senate now is simply to fill personnel slots and, of course, to continue the judicial revolution, right. which has been going on now for a year and a half. Um, if we can do that, well, maybe it won't be the the worst thing in the world. Again, I, I think this type of rationale is too clever by half. It's always better to win if you keep the – I mean, I don't think it will happen, but the scenario in which somehow Republicans maintain control of both houses of Congress uh, would set off a variety of effects. One, it would insulate Trump from any investigation and certainly any impeachment talk uh, for the second half of his term. Two, I think it would drive the Democratic Party totally off the cliff. Oh, and, and they're and they're headed in that direction anyway. Yeah. But to be frustrated after two years of hashtag resistance, women's march, Me Too, and not be validated at the polls would, I think, just like uh, throw the match onto the you know, I, gasoline I, I, drum of the Democrats. The most recent, uh, I should say, by the time this comes out, the one before that uh, commentary podcast, they went into deep, did a deep dive on their niche podcast about what happens if the Republicans hold on and, you know. It's all guesswork, right? It but is. at the same time, it does seem like if we are destined to head into a repeat of the 1960s or uh, what Ron Brownstein says that America right now is analogous to America in the 1850s, then uh, – which is a very different argument than the, than the Dinesh D'Souza argument um, – uh, uh, that uh, the way you would actually ignite sort of the Antifa – we now, by any means necessary types on the left, would be to show the futility of mainstream conventional politics. I think that's 
plausible. I think maybe even likely, but who who knows, right? Um, and certainly, if your guiding principle in politics is to own the libs and to drink their sweet, sweet, delicious tears, then watching them lose the midterms is just it's it's like the the early scenes of cloudy with a chance of meatballs where it's just raining candy and happiness everywhere but i think one of the reasons why all right so here's my concern you are i don't mean this necessarily as an insult <laughs> i don't always mean, a nice preamble i don't necessarily mean it not as an insult but you are far more nuanced on some of these issues than 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 i am um and certainly than people like you know we're both we're both just made of nuance compared to, say, Jen Rubin or Max Boot. Sure. Um, but you're more nuanced than I about how you are responding to the rise of of Trumpism. Um, so before I give my scenario about why I think it's a bad idea, why don't, why don't you, in a nutshell, tell me how you come down on this and what you think the prospects of conservatism are? If, if but, the no, Democrats... No, not about losing the midterms. I mean, just in generally, what is the rise of Trump the the bending of the party to Trump, the refusal of basically the establishment, the refusal and or the inability to successfully stand up to Trump. What does that say about the conservative movement? What does it say about the GOP today? Is the GOP going to be a Trump party past Trump? Well, I think uh, the first question to 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 think about is whether the conservative movement really has any cohesion at all. Yeah. Um, in the aftermath of Trump. So, so did, you know, I always, and we've talked about this before, I always look at conservatism as kind of a, 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 a spectrum of different groups. Uh, and, um, you know, they all often tied together by a common uh, threat. Right. And w- what Trump showed, I think, is that in the absence of a common threat, uh, these groups very easily kind of splinter off in different directions. And certain groups who had been um, thought uh, marginalized, um, such as like the Buchanan groups or right. the paleoconservative groups, um, actually were there all along and kind of came back to the fore and are more uh, dominant in a, in a Trump GOP than certainly they were under George W. Bush. So it's hard for me to speculate what the future of the conservative movement is, other than to say there will always be some type of conservatism. Um, sure. And uh, obituaries of conservatism are always um, overstated. Uh, the future of the Republican Party for the foreseeable future, it is it is Donald Trump's Republican Party. I, I wrote about this in, actually before the primaries in, in late 2015. I said, look, um, the, whoever becomes the nominee, much less the president, does shape the part, the direction of, mm-hmm. a, of a party. And so with Trump as president, you see the Republican Party uh, kind of moving very clumsily toward becoming basically the party of the white working classes, um, white white voters who um, don't have a college degree. And while I think uh, I am probably more sympathetic to the economics of that of such a party than, than a lot of my, my friends, the dilemma is uh, to make a majority party, you have to move beyond right. <laughs> your base of support. I don't really see Donald Trump doing that. Um, his big problem is, while the... the White, white working class has always been an increasingly p- important part of the GOP uh, over the last 30 years and one that many Republican leaders I don't think neglected or appreciated or understood. The GOP also needs 
the kind of two-parent families living in the suburbs who have college degrees and feel invested in society, and they, and they uh, want their kids go, to go to college, and they believe, actually, that the American experiment has been working out for them, right. which is something that a lot of the white working class do not believe. Right. Well, you need both halves. And right. so what we've seen since Trump has come to power is that uh, that that family, that two-parent family with you know two-and-a-half children uh, that I mentioned, they are just horrified. Uh, they do not like it. They just wish he would stop tweeting. They don't. They don't like the sense of racial antagonism that's pervasive in our society today. Uh, certainly, when the headlines were filled with the family separations, they were saying this is this is awful. Um, and so this this does not bode well for the future of the GOP. If 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 the if the Republicans cannot maintain the support among. Among this this group that was that's traditionally been very important to their coalition, right? So this is actually a perfect setup for why I think put Trump aside. Why losing the midterms could be disastrous for the GOP, because the by definition, any Republican candidate, any Republican incumbent, for the most part, and let's let's be honest. The blue wave in some ways already happened with 41 retirements, right? Basically, everybody who was looking at the tea leaves said, I can't do this, and they got out. And open seats are vastly more likely to flip to the Democrats than incumbent ones because incumbency still is really powerful. But so basically, the people who all said, I can't I can't run again, or I won't run again, it's not worth the risk of losing and all the rest, or all the people who have stayed on and who will get wiped out if there's something like a blue wave – will be any of the Republicans who depend upon those suburban, college-educated, bourgeois couples, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not prone to agreeing with Steve Bannon about anything, but, you know, he recently said that the college-educated Republican white woman is basically an extinct species in our politics. And if you look at the data, that, that sounds that actually is kind of right. And so the worry for me is if... Republicans lose the House, um, which I think has there's some benefits to that as well. But if the Republicans lose the House, the only people who survive are the Republicans who are all in on Trump. And so then you know, sort of the Western Pennsylvania, um, the Freedom Caucus guys, um, and then any of the institutional restraints led by people like Paul Ryan behind the scenes and others goes out the window and it simply becomes – a purely Trumpian party, right? Because it'll get smaller, more rumpy. It'll, it'll put the rump in Trump, right? And uh, and I, what I mean by that, for people who don't know, rump party means a small sort of party that's that that can't command a majority. And so the it will accelerate the process by which the GOP becomes vastly more Trumpy. Now on the punditry part about Trump, I just I think people are deluding themselves if they think that House investigations all have to be about Russian collusion. They can be about the friggin' Trump Hotel. They can be about Ivanka's deals with China. They can be about, you know, sweetheart deals and uh, there was something in uh, some Myanmar hotel. I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of these things, sort of the Adam Davidson beat that uh, are these these three old dudes from Mar-a-Lago who are running the VA. I mean, hearings on that stuff could be devastating for Trump and um, watching everybody in the administration either head for the hills or lawyer up um, is not going to be a great spectacle for Trump either. Um, but I agree with you. I, 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 as, if I put on my partisan hat, I can't – the MAGA hat just won't fit 
Um, uh, uh, I really, as a conservative, I want to hold on to the Senate because the ju- the judicial appointments are sort of everything. Um, and the House stuff, since not nothing's getting done, I, I can be much more dispassionate about it because I can see it on the one hand, losing it will be, be- – since I don't want the party to become Trumpist, losing the House will – make it more Trumpist, which I think will be bad. Um, on the other hand, I, w- I, I want Congress to do oversight. And apparently Congress only does oversight when it's controlled by the other party. I mean, I would say one uh, thing that struck me talking about the, the rump party, at least, is I think there's a tendency, um, and it's a function of just the importance we place in the presidency, and then if, certainly it's a consequence of Trump's overwhelmingly strong personality. But there is a tendency to look at each party in isolation. And so let's say the Democrats win the House or even win the House and the Senate. There's going to be a lot of Democrats empowered. Right. And some of that empowerment will lead to the investigations you talk about. Other parts of it will lead to just some crazy proposals. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Being floated. And so when you think about that family that right now, of course, does not like Trump, they're tired of him, um, they're ready to vote for a Democrat, they are going to be, by doing so, they are possibly empowering not only, say, you know, the kind of middle of the road Democrat who's campaigning on, uh, you know, good paying jobs and lowering prescription drug prices. They're going to be empowering Rashida Tlaib from Detroit and they're gonna, uh, Elon Omar yeah. uh, from Minneapolis, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez yeah. uh, from New York. And those are the faces that will so- all suddenly be dominating the discussion, not Nancy Pelosi's. Yeah. She's in a fight for her life against those fi- figures. So all of a sudden, that suburban couple, if the Democrats win, not only are they going to be dealing with Trump, they're going to be t- dealing with Trump vis-a-vis the Democratic the Socialist No, that's a, that's a really fair point. That's a fair point. And actually, this so this raises an interesting thing. You came to Washington, what, 2003, something like that? Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I came to Washington in 1991. My first boss was this guy, Ben Wattenberg, who, who, whose initial claim to fame was he was co-author of a book called The Real Majority. I, I know you're familiar with it, right? And the thesis of, of The Real Majority was that the median, the, the crucial swing voter in American life that all politics needs to appeal to is the Dayton housewife whose, whose brother is a cop, right? And the argument there being is that politics is won by grabbing the center, that has been the defining insight of politics my entire life and and really the life of the generation behind me too, right? It goes back to the very minimum Nixon's real majority stuff, right? And that seems to have just freaking disappeared on both sides, right? Yeah. This argument that um, politics is won at the center, I think Obama did enormous damage to it by blowing up the models about how you get elected, Right. I'm not saying this was a pernicious or evil thing. He got elected by turning up constituencies that normally didn't vote at, at very high numbers. And then he ran a presidency, despite what his admirers on MSNBC think, was vastly more partisan than people understood. And that most of his stuff about reaching out to Republicans was was kabuki to seem reasonable while really being extremely partisan. And then Trump comes along and he's the first president ever. I mean, at least Obama had the good manners to pretend that he was reaching out to the center with his dog whistle BS. Trump just flat out runs as if, and he said, I mean, this is not my interpretation, I don't think, 
I think it's just sort of an objective truth. The way he talks about his base is they're the real Americans. That's who matters. And anybody who's – and, you know, as, as Brownstein put it in this very useful podcast with, with Bill Kristol a couple weeks ago, Trump is running like a wartime president, but the enemy isn't the Soviet Union. It's the Democrats, right? And and so the dynamics of that on both sides now are is that no one – there's no – there are no – Blue dog Democrats, right? They're no moderate. I mean, John Kasich, who's a freaking human toothache as far as I'm concerned, he can't get traction. John Weaver seems to think that, like, this strategy works, which it, – and it does in terms of getting checks to, for his bank account. But the whole notion that we all grew up on, the norm that politics is run by commanding the center of gravity, the political center of gravity in American politics, doesn't seem to be the playbook for anybody anymore. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I love uh, the real majority. I recently I asked – Actually, the uh, elections expert Henry Olson uh, last year, I think it was. So who's the Dayton housewife of 2017, 2018? And yeah, consulting his charts or whatever he has, his binders, uh, fill of Dayton housewives. His, his, his bird entrails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, he augured that uh, she lives about something like 35 miles south west of of Dayton. Oh really? Yeah, and um <laughs> her circumstances are not not very good economically. Yeah. Um but she's still there. And of course she voted for Trump. Right. And so um the, I I take a slightly different tack. I think Trump is extreme personally, but politically I actually think he does occupy the center of American politics. I think if you kind of just match up where Trump's stated positions are on a lot of issues, they end up in the middle, say, of the bell curve of American public opinion, even mm -hmm. some of the most controversial issues. Take, for his example, his fight with the NFL, right? I mean, the truth is public opinion sure. thinks that the player should stand for the national anthem. Even something as controversial as the removal of Confederate um, general statues from American cities. I am amazed. Poll after poll after poll finds majorities yeah. say the statues should remain. Much less uh, issues such as... Um, trade and immigration. Now, those two issues, as a consequence of Trump coming to power, are, are somewhat deceptive because of the polarization, right? So now, even though Democrats, say, two years ago, would have been fine with immigration, um, even some legal immigration restrictions, um, and much more comfortable with the idea of a wall, now that Trump is in power and Trump is for those things, they outright reject them, and so th they become more unpopular. But I do think um, well, look, even on the question of entitlements, right? I mean, it's it's upsetting to many conservatives, but the truth is America, Americans are uninterested mm -hmm. uh, in, in doing anything about our entitlement system. And They're also wrong about that. Of course. And yeah. the, the duty of a statesman is to say, well, you have to lift your eyes up above the immediate horizon and right. look at problems are coming down. But again, politically, sure. he's where they are. Um, so I think people tend to misread the center. Mm -hmm. um, now, of course, the center also means certain norms that you and I are talking about. But for example, John Kasich, he thinks the center is just that. He thinks the center is just ways in which you communicate, interact with your opponents, uh, kind of the decorum of politics. When in fact, there's also the kind of the center as it's actually lived. And that center is um, contrary to a lot of Republican Party positions, uh, especially on issues of economics and trade. Okay, so this raises a couple interesting things. I did a very strange panel at the at the Aspen Institute this summer, and I had to make this point that the idea that the Republican Party is because I, I agree with you on policy stuff, the Republican Party is not. I mean, the 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 grab bag that was the tax bill, you can make an argument because there was so much Ryanism in it, right? But 
in sort of that in, interface of, between politics and policy that you're talking about, the GOP has not gotten more right wing, right? Um, it's but my, part of my point is that rhetorically, Trump has gotten is not centrist at all. Right? He's not moderate at all, no. right? And and so that still sends a political cue to people that he doesn't care about the center, right? When he basically says, if you're not part of my coalition, if you don't love me, if you're not, you know, basically he treats the electorate the way he does Omarosa. When she's, when it says great things about him, he recognizes it and, and promotes it. But when the second they turn on him, they're not real Americans. But so this is, so on your podcast, Write and Writer, the position of the person who is writer is the person who in a sort of a, a WWE style uh, approach is always all in for Trump or close to always all in for Trump. Why aren't you the writer person, right? Because on the policy stuff, on the policy stuff, we're both to going by traditional understandings of what conservatism is. We are both to Donald Trump's right, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I understand the problem with this is like, well, what do you mean by right? Do you mean nativism? Well, then no, we're not. Do you mean sort of limited government and, and simple rules for a complex society and taking you know institutions seriously? Then we are to the right of Trump. And so this is one of my problems with, with the damage that is being done is that I have no – I mean it bothers me. I have no problem if the Republican Party becomes a Trump party conceptually, right? Because I do think you're right. The president of the United States defines the party and there's no getting around that. And as much as I might lament aspects of that – as a conceptual analytical matter, that's just obviously true. But the definition of what it means to be on the right, the definition of what it means to be conservative, there's enormous conceptual damage and transformation that's being done to that stuff. And hence the title of this podcast, right? I'm, I'm still trying to hew to the old definitions of these terms that I grew up with that I, I try to defend. And do you think, you know, you know am I going to have to start calling myself a neoliberal or something? <laughs> The problem is that it's everything is being defined in terms of personality, right? And not and not in terms of political economy, and that's that's Trump's fault because Trump um, is uh, seemingly uninterested in developing this idea of the political economy of the center, and the attempts that are trying people who are attempting to do that, say like the editors at American Affairs Magazine, they end up in this awful not awful, but they end up in the kind of re- position of. One, well, they can't defend Trump the person because right. he's too extreme even for them. But then, well, what are they trying to graft onto Trump? Because he's not – as the president, he's not actually interested in developing any right. of the ideas that may exist below the surface uh, of his policies. And I think that this is – so it's it's Trump's mistake. And it uh, goes to some of the, the um, you know, just the weaknesses of his character because – the kind of, for me, signature Trump moment happened whenever he's supposed to give a speech touting the economy. And he has a speech. Some of the Trump speeches, I believe, are very well written and actually very well argued. Um, and so you have an idea where Trump's going to talk about the economy, he's going to talk about the tax bill, about all the actual conservative victories he's made. And what, of course, does he do in, invariably? He says, you know, I could read the speech. But it's boring. Right. And he tosses, tosses it aside. And the crowd loves it. Right. Because really, they love him. Mm-hmm. They're not – they don't want to hear the arguments. They want to hear the attitude. And this is a big dilemma because if you contrast that, say, with Ronald Reagan, who is very little attitude 
very heavy on the argument side. He was able to to shape the party in a direction of certain ideas, whereas with Trump, it seems to be his major influence right now on the party is in attitude. And so you see a lot of the people who he's endorsed in these primaries not not picking up on the Trump political economy, which mm-hmm. I actually think is the the foundation for a Republican majority, but they're picking up on the insults and yep. the nicknames and the tood. And if that's the only thing that Republicans learn from Donald Trump, then uh, this experiment not only will not have been worth it, but but it's going to collapse uh, because the tood is exactly what most people don't like. Right. Well, see, this gets to the point. The the first of all, you're right about Reagan. Reagan almost never used Democrat or Republican. Mm-hmm. Right. He was constantly trying to draw people in to his cause. The crucial bourgeois married couples don't love that, right? It's the, the tearing up the speech, you know. They want to hear him talk about the economy. They, they, they desperately are craving a reason to be able to say to their liberal neighbors or their liberal cubicle mates or whatever, well, here's why I'm still sticking with Trump. And Trump won't give him that, right? I mean, there is this, it's like vast swaths of the Republican coalition or like Jerry Maguire in, uh, you know, saying to Cuba Gooding Jr., "Help me, help you," right? You know? And and so this is this is one of the things that drives me crazy. Is whenever I talk to people about, um, uh, you know, Trump's tweets, you know, you'll hear people say, "Well, they're working for him," right? And I say, "Well, you do know that like a majority of Republicans wish he would stop it, right? You know, and um, they're not working for him, but there's no sort of safe harbor." To say, you know, people feel like they have to say it because it's a sign of fealty or something. And something like 70 percent of Americans, if he just stopped tweeting, that'd be worth five to eight points in the polls, I think. Oh, I, I totally agree. I think when we look back um, decades hence on the Trump presidency, one of the big decisions he made was to continue tweeting upon assuming the office of president. Right. And, you know, it was up in the air. He could have said he could have said one final tweet. Yeah. You know, I'm about to take the oath of office. I'm going to be communicating as presidents normally do. Well, maybe that wouldn't be in character for Donald Trump. And sure enough, that is a choice he didn't make. On the other hand, it's I think it's a choice that's hurt him um, because, as you say, mo- even most Republicans wish uh, he would just limit the tweeting and. Um, in fact, we were reminiscing about my old boss, Fred Barnes, who made the great point the other day. I saw him on TV and he was making the great point. He was like, look, you know, Trump's tweeting about tweeting about LeBron James and Omarosa, but, you know, he could tweet about judges, too. Yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. He could tweet about the tax cuts, too. And, but he doesn't because um, that, for whatever reason, is uninteresting to him. And not only uninteresting, it doesn't imp- – impact him right he only something every he defines the world in relation to him so when he sees somebody on tv talking about ideas well it doesn't really those are ideas right but if they're talking about him right well it's either good or bad and if it's bad then he has to insult you in return because no no attack can go unanswered in trump's uh, psychology um so do you think he could have stopped tweeting I mean, like, do you think it's in his? I don't nature? know if he has the self control. Yeah, right. But I think I be I think if I just don't know. Maybe take away the phone. But you know, he wants what he wants, right? And clearly, he wants to be able to tweet. He thinks, and you know, he gave an interview. We're recording this on a Thursday. He gave an interview uh, just uh, Wednesday, 
which is in um, the Wall Street Journal, to a Wall Street Journal reporter. And the, the reporter notes in the course of the interview that throughout the 20-minute conversation, Trump was having aides, ordering aides to come to the office with the latest stats on his social media audience. Mm-hmm. So with Trump, he, um, rather than kind of pursuing the, nor- the channels of communication that presidents usually do, he, as a candidate, decided, well, I'm just going to create my own audience. Right. And I'm going to do that through the, the mass rallies. And I'm going to do that through social media. And that will just be my mechanism. And I was, I was thinking about this the other day, actually. When was the last time Trump addressed the nation on TV? Now, I happen to know the last time was when he introduced Brett Kavanaugh. Mm. But the truth is, I think he's given three televised addresses since he yeah. was president. And in that, you know, he introducing Gorsuch, his decision on Afghanistan, mm-hmm. um, and uh, introducing Kavanaugh. And then, of course, the, the two uh, State of the Unions or budget. Right. So that's five. You can count them on one hand. Yeah. That is not the traditional mode of presidential communication. You know, the president would give a televised address. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's my agenda. You don't have that with Trump. Instead, I mean, he completely dominates the airwaves, but he's doing that through his um, personal antagonisms with whoever the target of the week is. You know, two weeks ago it was Michael Cohen. Uh, when we started out this week, it was Omarosa. Now, of course, we finished the week. It's John Brennan. There's always some doppelganger that he has to beat up right. in order to assert his authority. And that becomes the story of this presidency uh, for any given amount of time. So, you know, I have one of these, one, one of my heuristics, for want of a better word, um, when I listen to Trump is that he will give up, he will acknowledge his awareness of his own weaknesses by denying them, right? And so he'll say, or by asserting the opposite of them, right? And so he'll say things, like, I think he has a remarkably limited vocabulary. And it's funny, if you go back and you look at him in the 1980s, he had a pretty good vocabulary. He had complete sentences. He wasn't aphasic. He wasn't, you know, he didn't sound like, you know, an Alzheimer's patient walking out into the snow. I mean, it was like whole complete paragraphs that he could talk. And I think he's lost that capacity. I don't know. I think I personally think it's not age. I think it's the fact that he doesn't get enough sleep um, and that you kind of walk around like a dry drunk when you don't get enough sleep. But uh, he says, uh, you know, when he says things like, I have the best words, right? Or when he says, that means he knows he doesn't have the best words. Or when he says, I have an unbelievable memory. We know he doesn't have an unbelievable memory because Hope Hicks would have to remind him who people in the room were because he'd forgotten. When and in his tendency to constantly say things like, "This is the worst outrage ever," right? It's because he doesn't know anything about the past. Um, uh, and my my personal favorite was when he said, "Well, two personal favorites. One is when he said African Americans have never, ever, 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 ever had it so bad." <laughs> At the end of the Obama administration, which is sort of big if true, right? And then the other one was. Uh, when George Stephanopoulos asked him about civil rights after one of the debates in like March of 2015 or 2016, I can't remember, he said, nobody has ever done more for civil rights than I have. And he went on to explain to back up this pretty bold claim. <laughs> and it was that when he built Mar-a-Lago, he said it was going to be open to everybody, 
right? So in other words, he was going to comply with the minimal anti-discrimination laws of the state of Florida and charge Jews and blacks two hundred or three hundred thousand dollars to join his private club, just like he does white people. And it seems to me that like, I don't know, Martin Luther King or Jesus or Abraham Lincoln can compete with that. <laughs> um, maybe. Maybe. And so when he um, says I could be presidential, but that's too boring. What he's really saying, what he's admitting is I can't be presidential because I'm addicted to my glandular desire for praise and adoration. And um, which sort of raises my point is like how much every now and then you lapse into these formulations where you make it sound as if Trump is actively strategically making choices other than in the moment. How much three dimensional chess is the guy actually ever playing? I mean, can you give me give me a couple examples of some long term strategic thinking, either politically or geopolitically, that you think he thinks that he is 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 you know that requires adherence to certain steps along the way? Well, uh, I can't for this reason because I don't think he operates in the long term, and I think he um, you know it says it in Art of the Deal thirty years ago. He says, "I don't like planning ahead. Everything is improvisational." Everything is ad hoc and unstructured, and I am living in any moment. Time is a series of moments mm -hmm. in which I'm responding. Sort of like what Zeno's arrow. <laughs> it's very deep in a way, if you think about it. Now, having said that, I do think, and I, I know that, um, that many people on the right disagree with me, I do think there are several consistent themes in his approach to the world. Protectionism is one. Protectionism is one. Age, the yeah. idea that alliances are not working for the United States is another. Do you, do you agree with that? Uh, yes and no. Okay. I think the alliances are important, but I do think there's some element of truth to saying that these alliances can be constraints as much as instruments, mm -hmm. and we need to get them more to be instruments of, our, of uh, foreign policy. I disagree with him completely on, on the earlier version of this when he was saying NATO is obsolete and such. Um, and then... He has made a few choices in the lead up to his most recent presidential run, his successful presidential run. If you think about it, Trump toyed with running for president in 87. He didn't do it. He toyed again in 99. He didn't mm -hmm. do it. He toyed again in 2011 mm -hmm. and came very close but didn't do it. And it was in that 2011 run where – and we tend to focus on the birtherism, right? Mm -hmm. But it was also in that 2011 run where he recognized – that he could not, un he could not win the nomination if he were to remain like his friend Rudy Giuliani and be pro-choice. Mm -hmm. And so it was then that he flipped on the abortion question, and he has stuck with that. Mm -hmm. It was also then when he began taking up the issue of illegal immigration. Sure. And so, from 2011 to now, he's been consistent on those two additional things, um, and guns, and gun rights. Yeah. Which he, he was always there. So, so I think there's some decisions he, he's, he's made some decisions that he's stuck with mm -hmm. in that series, in that endless flow of moments in which, which is Trump. Mainly because he understands, and here again, I, I'll lapse in my formulation where I give him more credit than maybe he deserves. I think he understands the nature of his coalition or what he's always calling my people. Yeah, yeah. And he knows that in order to ride this out, However long he can, he needs to make certain compromises and guarantees. And that's like – that's the same thing with the Supreme Court, right? Mm -hmm. He – there in 2016 – and he makes these decisions in snap 
snap moments, but they often they often pan out for him, right? So in 2016, Scalia dies, and he very quickly says, you know, two decisions are made at that that moment. One is McConnell's decision not to hold hearings for whoever Obama nominated. Huge decision. And the other decision was Trump's, which was here's my list. Yeah. What did he? Was there any strategy of that? I don't know. I mean, again, that would that would imply like thinking through second and tertiary, secondary and tertiary effects, which I don't believe he does. But in that moment, he realized this probably made the most sense. He understood where his market was. Correct. Yeah. And and of course, a few months before that, in 2015, it was the same thing with the the Muslim ban, which became the travel ban. He intuited that the way to uh, to, the way to be successful in the Republican Party on immigration was not was not the more traditional arguments about, say, wages or stealing our jobs. He'll do that too. But the true way was to link the issue of immigration with terrorism. Mm-hmm. And that's what that was. Was there any reasoning to this? It, it, whatever it was, it was instinct. Mm-hmm. But but it, he he views himself as someone whose instincts pay off. And I think he was right, for better or worse, in, in both those decisions um, that he made in the course of the primary. No, look, I, I think that's right. I have this longstanding view that he's a black swan. And I don't mean that in some sort of apocalyptic, oh my gosh, you know, he's president, it's the end of the world sense. I mean in the sense that it was a great cartoon. I remember I first saw it, I think uh, Russ Roberts tweeted it out a long time ago, about winner's bias. And there's a guy who says... They told me not to go with my instincts. They said to give up. It was a fool's errand. There was no way this was going to work. But I stuck to my gut, and I kept buying those lottery tickets, and I won, right? And so Trump comes from a world in business where his behavior in the business world normally would ruin your business career. But he figured out a way, you know, on the fly to get rich despite breaking his word, breaking contracts, um, doing all sorts of – I think the technical word from political science is scummy things, and and it worked for him. And so, you know, it's like there's a great book called The Africans by this guy, David Lamb. He used to be a New York Times correspondent. And um, I sort of – I remember writing about this a long time ago. I collected examples of this, that in parts of the third world, the normal understanding of cause and effect is different, right? And so Lamb has this anecdote about how guys are tearing around a corner – Drivers are tearing around a corner on a dirt road in, you know, in some third world country and they take a hairpin turn and right at the moment a school bus is coming the other way and they just narrowly miss going off the side of the cliff, just narrowly miss sending the school bus off the side of the cliff and the conclusion that the driver draws is, that worked. You know, that's how you drive. <laughs> you know, And I think tr- a lot of Trump's life is like that, right? He keeps doing things that should have destroyed him. And, and I think it's one of the things that people love about him. Right? He's a fighter, blah, 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 blah. And so I think that he takes those instincts into politics. The thing is, is that if he had – the reason why he now has to stay with his base is he has so fundamentally antagonized everybody who isn't his base, right? I mean – it's a constant theme on this podcast to talk about if he had done that inaugural inaugural address where he reached he said we're going to spend 15 trillion dollars on infrastructure sort of the Erdogan you know economic program it would have won over not just his own populist base but also you know the populist base of the Democratic Party which does exist right um but instead he listened to you know 
um, Bannon because it's really hard not to listen to Bannon because he has so many layers of clothing. And um, uh, and so everything was sort of baked in from that point. And so I think there's a real problem for him was that, that you've limited your ability to win over people to your coalition when you've embraced the politics that you that he has, right? And so this, I wrote, we could put in the show notes, I wrote a corner post about this. I've been beating my spoon on my high chair about this for a while now. You brought up the list, the Supreme Court list. I think, don't call them never Trumpers. I think it's such a dumb term, but um, well, I'm Trump skeptics, right? Um, which I certainly call myself one. And, and you are one, but less hard than I am, right? We should be taking vastly more credit for the good things that are coming out of the Trump administration because that list was imposed upon him. By reality, but by the reality that there were millions of conservatives who said, look, I can't stand Hillary, but this guy, I just don't, I don't trust him. And they came out with this list and that reassured millions of Republicans. It reassured the Republican establishment, the conservative establishment. And you can go down a long list of a lot of, same thing with guns, same thing with abortion, right? The best things about the Trump administration, either ideologically or programmatically, are the things that have been imposed on him either by electoral realities or by donor realities or occasionally by just reality, right? Um, uh, and by, by Republicans and advisors who tell him, these are, things, these are red lines you cannot cross. Wherever he thinks he can purely go on his own instincts, he hires people like Omarosa. He talks about how NATO has outlived its usefulness, right? And so why Republicans... Take. I mean, I understand that that Trump does not respond well to criticism. I've I picked this up. <laughs> Have you noticed? <laughs> and because the normal tradition in politics is to get a politician to do what you want, you criticize them when you think they're wrong, and then you praise them when you think they're right. And instead, we can be, he just can be praised, right? But at the same time, it seems to me there's a lot more opportunity for Republicans to impose discipline on him than they realize, and that. The Trump skeptics should be declaring much more victory um, than they are. Right. I mean, and this speaks to, I think, the bigger problem from which Trump partly springs, and that is just Republican exhaustion. Yeah. Right. I mean, and the orb touching. I mean, the orb touching. Well, obviously, the orb was a big part as well. But if if Paul Ryan had and Mitch McConnell had enough, uh, you know, power in both each of their chambers and enough ideas to keep you know, rolling them down the pike. Now, Ryan will say, well, we passed all these bills. They got stuck in the Senate. Right, right, right. Sure. But if you were able to corral more Republican votes in the Senate or at least um, uh, center right majorities in the Senate and send these bills down Pennsylvania Avenue, Trump would almost certainly sign them because he wants the credit. Right. He wants the uh, photo op and everything. He doesn't have that. And so this gives him in his second year uh, much more freedom to kind of create the presidency that he always wanted. And so that's why we have the China thing. That's why we have um, the outreach with North Korea. That's why we have the um, kind of, you know, pounding down the doors at NATO. And it's also why we had the the mess in Helsinki because he – there was – and you talk about the reality principle. This is where the reality principle yeah, yeah, yeah. imposed itself because he thought, oh, yes, good. Finally, I can go do foreign policy because there's no real domestic agenda – and so I can make friends with my bestie, flawed, and it just it was right. a total meltdown. And what what came out of that? Well, harsher Russia sanctions, right? <laughs> That's right. what happened last week. The thing about his instincts, and you're right that sometimes the instincts pay off. 
But then, of course, there have been many moments throughout his career where they don't. And sure. the art of the deal is followed by the art of the comeback. And so this is why looking at trying to see the world through his eyes in which reality is just a series of discrete moments with no real through line, but you're just kind of adapting and um, to the circumstances of the moment is pretty important because you mentioned the whole infrastructure bill. Okay. You didn't, he didn't go forward. He didn't start with that. Right. I, I have very little doubt in my mind that if the Democrats win either the house and or the Senate uh, this fall, his state of the union address be all year, will be all infrastructure because yeah. that's too it's like okay well i'm just going to respond now to the reality i'm going to force their hand do right. they actually want this or not right and striking to me another issue striking me too when i look at all of these democratic candidates for the house um including i mean on the senate side some of their presidential front runners uh they agree with trump on trade yeah and so you'll have you'll have this strange moment where this this port side of the port this page in the portfolio that has been criticized by the Republican controlled Congress, all of a sudden might come to the fore mm-hmm. um, in a Democratic one. So uh, the, sometimes the instincts don't work I, work out, and I think a lot of the tweets have not worked out. Um, but the way he sees it is, well, who's just going to respond? If, if you know, is he, he goes bankrupt in Atlantic City. What do I have to do now to get out of it? Right. And then, of course, the narrative becomes his 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 resurrection right? Right, right, his right. his victory story coming up again yeah. um i sometimes i really do hope he donates his brain to science when he's <laughs> gone because there's a lot that neurologists can learn i mean just the the ability to somehow shape reality to conform to your preferences is i don't think i've encountered it in, in an individual at, at certainly at this pinnacle of power. I agree. That's why I keep arguing that Trumpism should be understood as a psychological phenomenon, not just in terms of the president, but in terms of his biggest followers, because there's so much motivated reasoning, so much, you know, imposition of, you know, free interpretation that people, so much meaning is imposed upon him that I just don't think there's a lot of underlying evidence for. Now, I should say, I did not intend for this podcast to be a pure you know, Trump on the couch episode. And yet, like every conversation in Washington, inevitably it turns. It does. You have to sort of it's it's sort of like, you know, O'Sullivan's law, which says any institution that's not explicitly conservative becomes liberal over time. In Washington, every conversation that is explicitly not about Trump becomes about Trump over time. (laughs) (laughs) Or in our case, five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So we got to wrap up shortly, but you're still working on a book, right? Let's build some anticipation for your uh I mean, it'll be a long, it'll be a long running anticipation. Okay, this might be like you know Joe Gould, Joe Gould's secret. You okay. know, it'll be like the two thousand page book that eventually you know some New Yorker writer uh, composes. When do you anticipate being done? No, not, not, not maybe during Trump's third or fourth term. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's become when you, it's, you know one of the history of conservatism is such that, and I'm and and you're like this too. Once you start burrowing into something, yeah. then you find more writers you've never heard of and more articles that you have to read. And so my latest strategy for writing this history of conservatism is where do you start? Well, so um, this is here's another decision. It's like, you know, typically I start where George Nash starts. And then when I teach this stuff, I start with uh, 1944 and uh, Road to Serfdom. But, you know, this Irving Babbitt guy is more and more interesting to me. And he, he, he is kind of a precursor to all this. Yeah. And so, oh, maybe I should think about kind of what were the kind of the antecedents, you know, what were, um, and so then that 
opens up a whole new avenue of, of, of research and such. When you're looking at the history of a, you know, it's a 70-year-old movement, if you begin. At 44. At 44. Yeah. It's a 70-year-old movement in America, and um, there's just so many interesting nooks and crannies. So it's one of those things that eventually will be done. I'm a young person. Uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. I, I, I hope I have many years ahead of me. I mean, maybe you just do volume one, volume I, that two. Might, that might be have to do. My new, so my new strategy is to take the kind of the two-week course, two course I teach for Hertog uh-huh. and just build out a huge outline yeah. based on going through each school. And that might be the best way for people to become familiar with it, too, especially young people. For listeners who don't know, uh, Matt teaches a course on the history of conservatism for is it Hertog Foundation. Is that what it's called? Uh, Hertog, Hertog Foundation, okay, yeah. yeah. The political studies program there for college students who are int- might be interested. It's a great program. I spoke to it a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, we were yeah. thrilled to have you there. And so that way might, you know, a way to get a clear idea of what are the different camps of conservatism? What are they arguing over? And the arguments are are rampant, you know, and especially as you come closer and closer to the, the contemporary moment. Yeah. Once, once you leave, once you leave the Reagan presidency, I mean, it's all out kind of, you know, street warfare. Yeah. You know, the warriors, like people are just kind of running, ducking for cover and, and fighting in the streets. And of course, that's the most interesting thing. Unfortunately, I'd have to write 60 years of history to get to that part. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's funny. I mean, I think we talked about this for listeners who've only recently joined this, started listening to this podcast. Matt and I did a major geek out session on the history of conservatism in episode, what was it, Jack? Jack doesn't remember. Um, <laughs> uh, Jack shrugged. Um, and uh, and so, you know, part of, part of my thing about the... I think I talked anyway. I think I talked about it on that episode when I first started writing my first book. Everyone said, "Oh, you got to read about the old right," and then I go and I find out there really wasn't an old right, right, or at least not in any way that we think about. It. I always thought of it like growing up reading all of this stuff is that sort of National Review was, you know, the second incarnation from the old right, you know, and that it's sort of like. This is sort of the the backstory in a Tolkien novel, you know, the, the Silmarillion or something like that, you know, and you just have to go back and find out about it, and you find all these interesting precursors. It turns out, no, it's really a very different animal, and and in so many ways, the sort of Buckleyite, you know, then new right as it was called. I mean, that's one of the really frustrating things is they keep coming up with new rights, right? And um, and the old. The old, the quote unquote old right of what Das Passos and, and Albert J. Nock and Mencken was a very fluid, weird thing. There's a reason they call them the super, superfluous men, right? Is because they really didn't belong to anything. And I remember writing uh, for the 65th anniversary issue of Na- National Review, I, I pitched them a piece on who lost the libertarians because it seemed like the libertarians were and have been sort of calving off from conservatism and heading over to sort of the sort of Will Wilkinson, Brink, Lindsay kind of libertarianism, right? Which I I've, I've, I think is very interesting stuff. I'm not denigrating it, but I think it's a, a, an American conservatism that loses libertarianism entirely is in woeful shape, I think. And and the more I looked at it, the more I realized it's like, no, well, libertarianism goes back like a thousand, two thousand years. Um, it certainly goes back to the 19th century with Herbert Spencer and all those guys, right? If not, you know, Diogenes, you know? And, and so the more appropriate piece would be you know, who lost the conservatives, right, from the libertarian perspective. And because they were here first. And as you say, you start your thing like Nash does in 1944 with not a conservative, but a libertarian, right, with Hayek. And and it's a very hard thing for people to get their minds around because conservatism is so explicitly past-oriented to understand that it really is the newest 
sort of major political ideology out there and that the the iterations that care more and more about the past are the more newer. So the paleoconservatives are newer than the neoconservatives. They're more recent, right? Mm-hmm. But they look back further and it gets very, very hard to figure out where to start. Where to begin. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Peter Virick, who was kind of a conservative fellow traveler. Problematic, yeah. 40s. And Conservatism Revisited, right? Conservatism Revisited was his contribution to that renaissance of conservative literature. I mean, he wrote a few other books, and he really parted ways with... Pulitzer Prize-winning poet, I believe. A poet, um, and he he and Buckley uh, basically fissured over the McCarthy issue. Right. He did in the, in the late... And the fact that Virick wanted to vote for Adlai Stevenson, I think. Yes. So he had a much more uh, uh, um, non-libertarian view. Right. Of conservatism. He put out something I recently discovered. He put out in 1957, I believe, or 59, a short little book for a, a kind of a specialty press called the Anvil Press, which is conservatism, half history and then half uh, anthology. And, you know, of course, he says you have to be – and this is where I think it's interesting vis-a-vis libertarianism. He said, like, well, with conservatism, you can place the origin – it is more recent than Diogenes. It's right. Edmund Burke. It's, seven, right. it's Reflections on the Revolution in France. And then he also, you know, he he also includes people like the Adams family, right? right? And John Adams in uh, in in that. And there's a whole kind of group. Fester is pretty right wing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Wednesday. They were all very, very right wing. You can see Wednesday being a sort of libertarian, actually. Kind oh, totally. I think you know. I think Catherine Catherine Mangu Ward could hang out yeah, with totally. him. Totally. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, and my favorite cousin, it. Yeah. Which, of course, you know, he was a big believer in in Burke. Um, and Smith. So there, so even if you start, you can find a kind of a prehistory there. Sure. But it's but a, not... A temperamental one. It's a temperamental one. Right. Exactly. And it's so, so when it gets into an actual movement, uh, a movement that's meant to shape public policy right down the road, that is much more recent. Yeah. I don't know if you know this, but I worked on a book for a couple of years when I was younger, in my 20s, my first book contract, and I violated all sorts of norms and canons of my my people, my 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 profession, and I gave back the advance because I couldn't finish. Wow! And oh, no. um, I was there were these terrible books called uh, you know the hundred most this and the hundred most that. I was supposed to do the hundred most influential conservatives, and I did such a deep dive trying to figure out an intellectually coherent way of doing a ranking. Right? But the publisher <laughs> wanted me to argue like Aristotle was the third most influential conservative <laughs> of all time. And if you think he's the second or the fourth, you're a fool, right? And Irving Crystal was the seventeenth, and you know, and that kind of stuff. And they, and they wanted like half the people to be alive, and I just wasn't going to, you know, put, you know, Gary Bauer and Newt Gingrich, you know, <laughs> on the list, uh, in you know that kind of thing. And uh, but one of the things when I was doing all the reading that always stuck with me was um, Tom Sowell made this argument that years and years ago that. Conservatism arose from the fact that you need an ideology to beat an ideology. <laughs> and and so for a long time, like H. Stuart Hughes and those guys defined conservatism as the negation of ideology, right? That ideology was the – was like the stuff that escaped some lab in the Jacobin, you know, uh, you know, laboratory or something like that. And that conservatism used to be the Lincolnian definition of adherence on the old and tried against the new and untried, Right. And that worked until you get to the Cold War, where all of a sudden you actually need an ideology to fight another ideology. And I think there's a lot of, a lot of merit to that. Um, the problem is, is that we now don't have an external threat that 
helps libertarianism, classical liberalism, which are different things, and conservatism of all its various stripes cohere together in the same way, right? And and I think Trump is accelerating the, the forces of Trumpism are not to return to that, you know, topic, but. <laughs> The tribalism that I write about in today's this week's sponsor, Suicide of the West, accelerates this problem. And so that brings me to Virek or Virek. I can never figure out how to pronounce. I call him Virek. Virek. Okay. The one concept I really got out of Virek, 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 that guy was this concept of trans tolerance. And Virek argues it has a new meaning in today's world. Yes, it does very much so. In in his original formulation, he pointed out that the more coherent and strong ideological bonds are the less important are old bigotries and prejudices. So the right loved having black anti-communists come talk about how great capitalism is or have uh, Jews talk about how, you know, American conservatism or anti-communism is great. And whereas in the past, traditional bigotries might have prevented you from wanting these outsiders in your group, if you paid allegiance to this new ideological schema, those kinds of things fall by the wayside. I think there's an enormous amount of truth to that. I think that's what, you know, has helped transform the Democratic Party to what it is today. I think that explains, you know, I don't care, you know, it, it explains to a huge extent, you know, some of, no, nah, I don't want to say a huge extent, that would be wrong. It explains some of the things like why so many, why the Tea Parties were constantly looking for African-American leaders um, because they ha they actually hated being called racist, and they want, and I think rightly so, and they were trying to argue for universal principles. And so, having Ben Carson as their spokesman, or having Herman Cain as their spokesman, was a way to sort of wear their that on their sleeves, right? And, and I think today, this stuff, you know, with Trumpism, as long as you love Trump, you're okay by me. It doesn't matter what you say about religion. It doesn't matter what you mm -hmm. say about all, the, all these other things. Recede. The problem is, is that with Trumpism, it's a cult of personality rather than an ideological program. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a few thoughts. I mean, one in terms of a common threat, I think one that is emerging is um, political correctness. Yeah, I think that's right. And probably it doesn't have kind of the power, of, say, of the Soviet Union or global communism or even uh, maybe the threat from radical Islam after 9-11. But when I look at the conservative zoo today, I see a lot of people talking about the threat from political correctness. On ideology, um, it was also, of course, Russell Kirk who defined conservatism as the negation of ideology. Right. And I think I always quoted Hughes on that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, But I think Kirk's an important person to kind of try to fit into our story. His centenary is this year. Mm -hmm. And um, he, you know, he always... For listeners, and, uh, Russell Kirk was the author of The Conservative Mind and long associated with National Review, but not always on the masthead. Well, this is precisely my point. I mean, you know, Kirk basically did more than anybody to bring the right. Burkean tradition to the forefront of American political discourse. Conservative Mind comes out in 53. He and Buckley, really, whose first book, uh, Got a Man Yale, came out in 51. Right. So he and Buckley are the two most prominent conservatives in American life. And so the, the question becomes, well, we need a magazine. Uh, National Review is going to be the magazine. Founded in 55, Russell Kirk, not an editor. Yeah. But a columnist. He writes a column for 25 years. And that's the that was Buckley's way of kind of integrating this more temperamental, dispositional conservatism right. that has roots centuries past in centuries past uh, into the movement conservatism, uh, the more, as you say, ideological conservatism uh, that Buckley Buckley was forming. And, you know, by the end and it's also interesting by the end of toward the end of his life, he dies in 1994, I believe. But um, some of his most controversial public statements 
and speaking of Russell Kirk, occurred toward the end of his life at the end of the Reagan presidency where he declares war on the neoconservatives. Yeah, and you begin to see that fissure. And the chirping sectarianism. Of libertarianism. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He, hated, he hated libertarians as well. And so, so you see kind of in Kirk is there as this kind of this presence in the background throughout, and but also kind of revealing the directions that conservatism is going to take throughout the course of his life. Yeah. Um, also, Buckley refused, rejected um, J.T. Flynn, who was one of the most prominent yeah. old right writers of the 20s and 30s, um, which was one of the signal that the National Review wasn't going to be subscribing to a lot of that tradition either. But all right. Well, we I knew we if we stayed here long enough, we could nerd out on this stuff. I appreciate it. Uh, Jack and I have some housekeeping stuff that we're going to get to in a second. But thank you very much for doing this. It's at short notice. I appreciate it. And is there any uh, any predictions for the week ahead that you want to make on the way out? No? Uh, Trump will insult somebody new. Fair enough. All right. Thank you very much, Matt Coninetti, uh, editor-in-chief of the Free Beacon and, um, uh, and, a, and a fixture across the mainstream media firmament. Uh, thanks for coming. Thank you, Jonah. All right, so Matt Continetti has left the room uh, or the studio or I guess both of those work. And uh, I'm here with Jack Butler. I saw something on Twitter about how Dana didn't know who Dana Perino didn't know who you were on. Oh, I don't know. I haven't. I saw that as well, but I haven't looked into it yet. Yeah. For people who don't know or are new to this podcast, because there are literally millions of people joining this podcast every week, by which I mean maybe hundreds or thousands. Jack Butler is my research assistant. He's the producer of this podcast. He's my amanuensis. He's the host of Young Americans podcast. Uh-huh. On Ricochet. On Ricochet. And and every now and then we do some cleanup operation at the end of this thing and talk. And uh, apparently, I guess Dana didn't realize who you were or something. like. It seemed like that on Twitter, but who knows? And I, I also, I've been feeling guilty about my story about the creation of the five from the Sunny Bunch episode, uh-huh. um, because I feared I sounded disparaging of Dana Perino, and Dana Perino is literally like one of my favorite people in the world, um, and um, I think she's on the the force of truth and justice, and is an incredibly impressive person. It's just distracting and misleading because she is so easy on the eyes that you come, sometimes forget how incredibly smart and decent she is. But uh, um, so if if, if people thought I was disparaging her. I want to retract that 100%. I, I love Dana. Um, so what do you think of me and kind of anything? I really didn't intend for it to be a Trump dissection thing, but it is what it is. Well, you just can't help yourself, can you? Apparently, yeah. Um, no, I was really... <laughs> when you mentioned the Silmarillion, I... Which I can never get through, by the way. I am getting through it right now. I have been... I have made a decision lately for various reasons to become a Lord of the Rings nerd again. Uh, that was the that was the first nerd passion that I had as what a ten year old when the movies were out. Um, Good God! Yeah, and I'm getting back into that because I I have not read them since, but I'm going whole hog this time. I did, I also tried to read the Silmarillion way back in the day and could not get through it, but I'm about I don't know fifth through it right now and I'm just entranced by it. It's so it's so interesting. Why don't you explain to people what it is? It's like Sil- the Silmar- it's apocrypha. Well, yeah, the Silmarillion is like the Lord of the Rings version of the Pentateuch. <laughs> um, it's like uh, basically the, the all of the stuff that is only 
barely alluded to in the Lord of the Rings trilogy proper is like explained to ridic- in ridiculous detail. Right. And like the origin of things like orcs and balrogs and Sauron, it's all It's there. like the liner notes to Yeah. The Lord of the Rings. Put together, I mean it wasn't something that Tolkien finished in his lifetime. It was put together by his son Christopher after to- um J.R.R. Tolkien's death. Um, Alleged death. <laughs> what? Are you going to create a J.R.R. Tolkien is still alive? I'm just saying, you know. Uh, trust no, but verify. I just that reminds me of the way uh, if if Elvis didn't actually die, and there's you know the tombstone thing, I I see there's some credence to that. He'd probably be dead by now. That's right. Because like, he, he was not in great shape when he died. It's like when people say if Reagan were alive today, if Reagan were alive today, he'd be like 106. You know? <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't be doing much. Um, but no, I'm getting back into The Lord of the Rings. And so this it was mentioned on this podcast. It was mentioned on the Ross Douthat podcast. And I'm I'm all about it. I'm I'm a Lord of the Rings. Uh, I will. I'm just a big fan. And I think Star Wars, Game of Thrones, put them all aside. Tolkien is where it's at. That's fair. I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Tolkien. I would love to go back. Maybe I'll do that on my road trip, which commences very soon. I'm picking up my RV today. I'm very excited about it. And uh, I also want to do some quick housekeeping here. We are going to try and do a podcast from the road. I'm not sure when. Jack and I will coordinate that. Next week, we are going to also air – air is the right word. You know, It's sort of like saying dial a phone number. It, people know what it means, but it's decoupled from the technology. Um, Can you explain to me why what, – what is anachronistic about the word air? Because it used to go out over radio waves, right? Oh. And it was like on air. Oh, I see. You know? That's um, why something was on air because yeah. it was literally hmm, – I guess that makes sense. Yeah. I mean I, I believe – It's above yeah, We you. have signs outside the studio that say on, you. Yeah, on air, right? And that's – the air was like going out over the airwaves. I see. Hmm, um, and uh, – but anyway, uh, we were going. We'll post um, a podcast I recorded in New York with my literary agent Jay Mandel. I I I I love Jay. Jay's a great agent. He's one of the best agents in the business. He knows everything. But I fear that it will be of great interest to a small number of people who are actually actively interested in the world of writing books, publishing books, how publishing and literary agents work. I had this idea of doing a. So you want to write a book podcast, and I think that's what the title is going to be. And it, my suspicion is it will leave a lot of other people cold. And so one of the reasons why I want to record this one is to just get some more punditry and stuff in. And uh, But if you're interested in books, I thought – did you listen to it? Yes. What did you think of it? Well, I, if it does leave people cold, I'll tell you why. Uh-huh. I didn't mention Lord of the Rings. That's true. That's true. But I had just talked about Ross that earlier that afternoon – with Lord of the Rings. Can never get too much Lord of the Rings. Fair enough. And uh, we also may air a panel thing I did with um, Charles Murray a couple a month or so ago about my book and all these kinds of things. We recorded it and we want to keep it on the shelf until later in the summer. So we may post that as well. And um, other than that, is there... Oh, uh, I know I'm behind on signing the book plates for people. Um, I will... I promise if you sent a, a self-addressed stamped envelope and a request for a book plate, book plate, you will get one. It's just things have been very, very hectic. And I know if you follow my Twitter, you know that uh, a lot of people want me to respond to various reviews, various controversies about 
you know, Dinesh D'Souza and, and, and arguments about liberal fascism. I have been trying to decouple from Twitter as I get ready to go on vacation and diving into some of these fights. It just doesn't, I, I don't have the brain wattage right now to do it, the bandwidth to do it, but I will, uh, as sort of as they say, the Lannisters always pay their debts. I will be returning to some of these things. I have been thinking of doing a um, liberal fascism 10 years later thing because I think there was a lot of uh, myth-making on both the right and the left about the atten- intent of that book and the argument. I have some strong disagreements, to say the least, with Dinesh's approach to, to this topic and to others, but we'll just pray, maybe have to wait um, to get back to that. And um, oh, there's some, one thing I wanted to mention. Yes, I so the old the anecdote you related about being recognized from the remnant. Yes, something like that happened to me last weekend. Really, I was at a race, and someone recognized uh, my first my face from my a remnant fan uh-huh. recognized first my um, my face because he follows me on Twitter, and then when I started talking. It's like ah, that's Jack. You do have a distinctive voice. Well, I'm I'm glad. Flinty, but it's it's distinctive. <laughs> Can I start a fire with it? I don't know. Uh, uh, I guess I need. What's the other thing you need? Iron, flint, and an iron. Yeah, I, I, I'm the iron. I think. <laughs> no, I just I have a deep voice. We know? did start the fire. Yeah. Um, and uh, this show's going to my head. I think so. Uh, how 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 is it doing? By the way, the. The, the the young Americans. Oh, by this show, I I it was from the remnant I was recognized. I see. Not from okay. my show. Oh, okay. All right. Well, um, but it's go it's chugging along. We had a new episode came out on Monday uh-huh. about lib ownership and home ownership. Two things that don't necessarily go together. No. Well, there was a comfortably smug tweet analogizing lib. He thinks there may be a lib ownership bubble. Uh, um, I think he may be right about that. <laughs> So, like anyone can go out and own a lib these days. They don't uh-huh. even ask for any uh, any down payments. Any any <laughs> any. They don't check your credit. Yeah, no. People get overextended. They get these no interest lib ownership loans. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a it's a it, it's a bubble that could be popped. Um and uh, gosh, anything else going on? I'm trying to think. Washington is empty because it's August. Washington is empty because it's August, and it's equatorial here. Um, a friend of mine pointed out the other night that I used to have this tradition in the morning when I walk the dogs of uh, doing a uh, very literary literary, maybe a strong word um, weather forecasts for DC where I would say every morning um, uh, Washington in the morning is uh, um, Rangoon whorehouse um, <laughs> followed in the afternoon by uh Michael Moore's sweatpant fog or something like that. And um, I completely forgot to do it this summer for some reason. So I, I, I hate to see traditions die. But um, They are the democracy of the dead. Um, so wait, does that make dead traditions zombies? I don't have to. No, they just, well, we'll have to work through this, 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 this metaphor. Um all right, so people, if you could uh, please keep up the reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, all of those places, that would be wonderful. Um, we're going to have I, – I keep promising this, but I want the podcast to get weirder in the fall. And uh, if you can uh, subscribe, if you don't already, that would be great. Um, if you could remind John Podoritz and the guys at Commentary um, that they are still drafting um, behind me in the race to – podcast supremacy that would be wonderful um and uh 
anything else that we need to get out there, Jack? Oh, Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Jonah Remnant. Mm-hmm. Um, Jack's, by the way, is at Jack Butler. What? Four eight one five. Four eight. You know what that's from? No. It's from the sequence of numbers in Lost, which I will never stop defending yeah, ever. Apparently, certainly feels that way. Um, and uh, and other than that, um, uh, stay tuned. I don't know what we'll have exciting reports from the road. And uh, until then, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.